0: Hello and welcome to this episode of Jimmy's Jobs of the Future with today's guest Dan Bladen of Cadence. Dan is an old friend of mine so it was great to get him on the show and talk about it. And there's a lot discussed about the future of work and how that is changing our lives. Well Dan's company is right at the forefront of doing it and as you'll hear he's been very successful. He made a pivot away from a hardware company that was charging mobile phones into software as a service company so it's a great story he's got some amazing investors and he is based out in california so we talk about the differences between us and uk culture and we also talk about the importance of faith and dan's christianity and how that gives him a sense of purpose not something we've discussed on the show before I found really interesting. So anyway, I hope you enjoy it. And as always, follow us on socials, leave us a rating, all of that stuff is very much appreciated. Thanks for listening. This show is made possible by the fantastic support of our various partners. And I wanted to thank The Octopus Group. The Octopus Group is a collection of eight entrepreneurially minded businesses across financial services and energy, all founded on the one simple belief the people and the planet deserve better. They are intent on building a better tomorrow for future generations and are a certified B Corp, demonstrating they care as much about the impact of their investments as the returns they generate. I'm proud that Octopus have backed this show since the second series, and they are the reason why we are now able to put such a professional show together. To hear more about what they do, it is worth checking out previous episodes with the founders Chris Hewlett and Simon Rogerson or the CEO of their investments arm, Ruth Hancock. If you want to see how you could partner with us, go to our website at www.jobsofthefuture.co. And now, on to today's episode. Dan, welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Jimmy, (laughs) pleasure to spend time with you again. Now, exactly. I wanted to go back to the first time that we met when I was in number 10. And for those that haven't been to number 10 before, it's obviously a secure building. And so guests have to leave their phone at the front door. And so there's about 200 sort of mini pigeonholes. Um, and yeah. Brent said, you should meet this guy, Dan Bladen, because he's making these amazing wireless chargers and maybe we could install them in number 10 i know brent is one of your investors as well so you came in to see me to kind of pitch this idea um but now you're running a software as a service future of work company so tell me about the shift yeah brent's amazing and all the team at
1: first minute they've done um uh, they've been an amazing support for us. When we came in to see we were doing a, a wireless charging company called Chargify that was basically putting wireless charging into offices and hotels and meeting spaces all over the world. We had it in about 20 countries. And the idea was that wireless charging was going to be everywhere Wi-Fi was. And we built a network of these wireless charging spots with companies like Okta, and we had it all in their meeting room and desks in their offices and Uber and Hewlett-Packard. We also had a bunch of hotels and stadiums. Um, and the idea, yeah, was to put wireless charging in these little boxes in, in Downing Street. And when the pandemic struck, nobody really cared about our wireless charging business, <laughs> Jimmy, that we have been building for almost eight years at the time. Because everyone was at home partly as well, right? So everybody just... was at home, exactly. and Nobody was in public spaces. And and to be quite frank, you know, some of the telcos around the world saw a huge drop-off in 4G and 5G data because everybody was just on, on Wi-Fi. So it's a very, very similar thing that happen. But yeah, our our main business was selling wireless charging into offices. And the experience was you put your phone on a desk, predominantly hot desks or hotel desks in in offices, uh, it would wirelessly charge your device, uh, your phone, your AirPods, etc. And we would check you into that desk. So there was software on the wireless charger that would recognize you, check you into that desk. And so we had that deployed at Accenture's offices in New York. When you put your phone on the desk, recognize you, check you in or launch your Zoom call if you're in a meeting room. Um, Yeah, but nobody really cared when the pandemic (laughs) struck and we had, we were a hardware IoT company. So we had stock, we had orders, we had stuff in warehouses as well. And we had customers that had signed POs for purchase orders for 1000s of units renege on their purchase orders because they were just completely unsure what was going to happen like the rest of us. And so Fast forward, this is kind of March time. Fast forward 2020, just a few months after I moved out to the US with, with my wife and, and three little kids, and we were unsure what to do. We, how long is this going to last? Is everything going to go back to normal in September? And do we just need to, as a business, cut our burn for a little while? But what we had happen was a large company, a Fortune 50 company in, in, um, in New York, in Manhattan, said to us, hey, chargeify you've got wireless charging over all of our desks and meeting rooms and software that manages that can we use that software to manage our hybrid workplace and that's what kickstarted the move to what the business has now become which is called cadence
0: and so tell me about the name cadence and where that came from
1: yeah so cadence is this idea that humans kind of work best when we're in a rhythm and I grew up as a musician, um, and I also, <laughs> during the pandemic, like many of us, got really into Peloton. <laughs> um, and as you know, on Peloton, the instructor, instructor tells you what cadence to cycle at. And for me, kind of cadence struck this really nice resonation almost of flow and progression and a speed in which you can operate. And you can operate on your own cadence, or you can join kind of the cadence of others, or it's a marching beat might be another way of thinking about a cadence and there's been so much ink spilt about the future of work and how it should all work that we just thought the real challenge with hybrid which is now becoming the predominant mode for for work is not who is in on which days how are you going to use the office are you going to do hot desking etc it's about finding the right balance between lifestyle both at work and at home And we just felt this term cadence encapsulated so much of what people were really trying to find, which was a rhythm that worked for everybody.
0: I think it's such an important word that I use a lot in terms of how we have more cadence with you know guests that have been on the podcast and all this. Right, it's like that continual kind of like relationship building and and rhythm of it is, is something that is really difficult to to build um and being able to do that as you guys are doing because you've now got 120 b2b companies
1: 280 Jimmy 280 oh, so, <laughs> so yeah it's growing um it's growing quickly um uh, you know there's there's about 25 trillion dollars worth of employee salaries that are moving to hybrid and then in the US alone i think the latest data is saying there's 22 trillion dollars of office space that's moving to hybrid so this is like an absolutely gigantic (laughs) uh, market and uh, yeah, something that the world has actually never seen before, quite the scale of uh, people changing the way that they work.
0: Why do you think that the the future of work has never been a bigger topic and kind of focal point in the media? Why do you think it took a pandemic for us to really get to that point?
1: Well, I think a couple of things, right? It was a cataclysmic event, you know. It gave everybody an opportunity to the pandemic that is, to stop what they were doing to some extent, look up, look around. It was, it was essentially a big time out. Not that work stopped, but I think that a lot of people assessed what was working for them and what was not working for them and what they wanted to do next. And, and the interesting thing is that that looks different for everybody. I think the reason why the future of work looks different for everybody is because everybody has such a different experience of the pandemic and everyone has a unique setup in terms of family life, uh, etc. So there's a there's this constant stream of like media cycle in the future of work because there are literally billions of points of view <laughs> about how the future should work and what's working for each individual situation. And that's why I think Cadence is such a unique Tool Because it's trying to help people find that cadence that works for their lifestyle and their aspirations, both at home and at work. So I think it was the opportunity to assess what was going on um, and to look and say, hey, we're going to reinvent the way we do things forever. You know, you and I inherited offices from the industrial age. <laughs> and I honestly do think that, that that the pandemic was a line in the sand of, OK, what are we going to build for the connected age? Um, So I think it was a stop, pause, reassess, go moment that otherwise people were just, you know, locked down in in the whirlwind of everyday life prior.
0: And do you think, I mean, one of the things that frustrates me slightly about the future of work debate at the moment is it's rather centred around days in the office. And it's like we sort of can't quite let go of the old systems and so on. And so we're we're going at what's comfortable. And there's big arguments kind of in the UK between sort of government ministers and civil servants about how often people um, should be in and so on. What does the future of work look like to you? Do you think we'll ever get a definitive answer on it? Or to your point earlier, are people just always going to be changing what their desires are when it comes to the future of work? Yeah, I think
1: people are always going to be changing their desires. And I think that as people go through different life stages, they're going to be <laughs> changing uh, their their desires as well. We're at a really interesting point in time right now with the global economy as well. So it'd be very different thinking about the future of work if the stock market was where it was a year ago um, and economies were where they were a year ago. Um, I say that because... It's not, <laughs> and things aren't looking great for, for uh, the vast amount of companies, particularly growth companies. And there is going to be a much higher inspection, much higher tension on productivity. Um, whereas throughout the pandemic, we heard about you know the great resignation and quiet quitting and people doing a couple of jobs at the time. So before I kind of think about what the future of work looks like, I think it's really interesting kind of there's going to be such a close inspection of what's actually being productive over, over this time. Um, I think a number of other things about the future of work, you know, we're obviously big believers that people will find their rhythms. And I think that that's going to move to uh to almost like a performance you know um you know when was the last time that you know let's take manchester united for example when was the last time that you know ronaldo puts his hand up in the air with three fingers or whatever and every player should know what to do at that corner kick but right now you've got kind of quarter million dollar half a million dollar hundred thousand dollar employees navigating hybrid in this like super haphazard way Who's going to be in when, et cetera. And that never happens in pro- other professional contexts like sport. So I think people are going to, a little bit like Google Maps, you know, 10 years ago, if you and I were to drive from London to Scotland, we would have whacked a tom-tom on the windscreen and it would have shown us how to get there, but it would have been void of context it wouldn't have shown us weather or traffic alerts or speeding or anything like that whereas now we use google maps or ways and it's filling us with context and and, and i think we're going to have tools that are going to help place us in the right places at the right time so that we can get the best outcomes the google maps of work that's that's quite a uh that's quite a slogan (laughs) yeah well you know it just has to happen right like people i mean we had a customer in la the other day that said that they look at 12 different outlet calendars every night before going in (laughs) um and and we've got a customer in london that had two full-time people managing a google sheet for when people were going to be in and what desks they were going to be on on what days etc so it's a real mess. <laughs> yeah, and it's expensive as well. It's massively expensive. I mean, we've, we've got this framework that we call, internally we call it Hybrid one, two, three, and 4. Hybrid 1 is essentially 2000 to 2019 where we got the tools of hybrid. You know, we got laptops with batteries that work. We got Wi-Fi, we got 4G, we got 5G, et cetera. So work could happen anywhere, but largely it, it happened on the platform of, of the office. So that's, that's Hybrid 1, 20, uh, 2000 to 2019. 2020 is hybrid two, where we have forced remote, which largely worked for the most parts, um, you know, particularly for, for white collar workers. It worked because we had the tools of hybrid one that, that enabled it to work. But nobody really wants, to, even their CEO of Zoom said that they don't want to sit on Zoom meetings for the rest of his life. <laughs> um, fast forward to hybrid three, which is what we're all now experiencing, which is this blend between remote and hybrid, which we think is going to be disastrous um for two reasons number one because most people are uncoordinated there's this kind of who's going to be in when people make the commutes, they thought that friends were going to be in there or that particular colleague was going to be there they end up sat on zoom all day on their own not having the best experience so there's this huge coordination challenge with hybrid three if you Try to overcome the coordination challenge. You then walk into another challenge, which we call forced hybrid, which is you need to be in on these days. Apple and others are are doing that. And the challenge with that is that the employees lose their autonomy, right? They lose their autonomy about when and where they're going to be in. But also the companies don't get to benefit from space saving either. So most of our companies are moving to two to one or three to one people to desk ratios. So they're sharing much more space. And so if you have forced hybrid, you have to have space for everybody on those days. So those are the challenges with hybrid three. And you know even Elon, the, one of the best entrepreneurs on the planet, he can't get his people <laughs> in when he yeah. wants. Um, so that's the challenge with hybrid three. So we think that hybrid four, which we call coordinated hybrid, which is trying to figure out when, where, who, and importantly, why you should go in is absolutely key. So it's adding all that. All that context to the to the mix that we think is is critical,
0: let me pick up on this point because you' you're based out in the in the valley, and one of the most interesting things I think of the kind of development of the office right like if you think of the office as a kind of post war structure that's kind of been developed as alongside kind of the growth of corporations in that space yeah one of the big defining features are since turn two thousand's been the sort of tech companies growing becoming you know massive companies and they made the office one of their kind of selling points to join right and partly the kind of like casino office of where we'll try and keep you here (laughs) as long as possible with sleep pods table tennis tables unlimited food etc you're still out in the valley what do you see happening because so much of the world's kind of innovation and thinking it takes yeah. place out there before making its way to the rest of the world. What are you seeing in regards to the office itself? I do think the valley is a bubble.
1: We certainly see the east coast of the US, particularly the northeast and western northern Europe to be very, very similar in terms of how they're doing hybrid. And you can understand why, right? The Similar weather patterns, similar kind of industries, heavy leaning towards services and finance, but also people are really packed in. So not everybody has a spare room or a vacation home or what have you. Um, so we're seeing much more hybrid engagement and usage of our products on the east coast or the US and the western of, of, of Europe, and particularly around London and, and cities like that. On the west, uh, Silicon Valley has been very, very scared of COVID. Like they have, it's been very, very concerned. Even you know, I went, I flew from the Bay Area to Salt Lake City. There's a high amount of people. Uh, Wearing masks in the airport, which I just don't see anywhere when I go to London. So there's a number one, I think there's a bit of fear still in Silicon Valley. And the traffic's definitely back. (laughs) Um, So there's a lot of people that are making the commute. They're just not doing it every day like they used to. You've seen Google Campus. uh, They've just announced a brand new campus, which looks amazing. Uh, Adobe just won an award for their new campus in San Jose. People are still building for the most part, but what I'm seeing is there is a really, really empty inner cities. So San Jose and San Francisco are really still quite quiet, but the Los Gatos, the Saratogas, the Palo Altos, the small towns, like they're really quite busy. The coffee shop meetings are going, the WeWorks are busier. Um, so I don't think Silicon Valley's quite figured it out yet. The other thing to remind kind of folks about Silicon Valley is that even though it's known worldwide for all of its connectedness and serendipity, it's not set up for it very well. <laughs> I <Like> think <laughs> public, public transport is not amazing in any way, shape or form. There isn't like a central meeting place. Um, you don't just walk around down a street. You know, you kind of get in your little car and you drive to the next parking lot with the next office. And so there needs to be a compelling reason to go in and see people and so I honestly don't think Silicon Valley's figured it out yet. What I am seeing is London and New York much more taking a lead on how this should be, how this should be working if I'm quite honest.
0: It's interesting. It used to be one of the points I would make in terms of, you know, well, still do make in terms of you know, UK wanting to kind of get Silicon Valley areas, right? Like it's one of those classic kind of policy yeah. things. We're going to make a Silicon West Midlands or, or whatever. And the point I used to make was that to get from you know the sort of South Bay area around Cupertino to the north in San Francisco, you're looking at the best part of a two-hour drive anyway. And actually, you know, if you look at where you can get from King's Cross in two hours, yeah. like you can reach a huge amount... The kind of UK's population, right? And I mean, this is Saul Klein's point from Local Globe as, as well that he that he makes with such forcefulness in terms of that kind of becoming the new a new kind of creative hub. So it's really um, really interesting in, in regards to that.
1: So I completely agree, um, and I think London's done a terrific job, particularly around King's Cross. Um, the The thing though is that everybody's still in different industries in the UK. <laughs> in that in that kind of triad or Triangle of London, Cambridge, Oxford. Everybody's still in very different industries. Here, there is only one industry. <laughs> so yeah. that's that's like the, the the interesting difference is that if I go to a, one of my kid's birthday parties, everybody is in a startup or they work for a large tech company. There are very few lawyers. There are very few. There are very few nurses that I you know that you come into contact with. And I was just I just noticed that every time I go back to London and I'm on the tube. I hear people talking about their jobs and they're not in tech for the most part. It's very, very mono here, which is I love right now the stage of life I'm in, whether I'll get bored with it over time or not, TBD. But it kind of feels like a university town where everybody's in this one culture together, which makes you sharper, I think. And it's also the kind of place where you know I went to a friend's birthday party last November and yeah, I just sat next to this guy I'd never met before, I'm slightly older than I am. And um, you know, two weeks later after meeting him, I walk away with a, a check for our new round. <laughs> and yeah. and that kind of stuff just doesn't happen as regularly in the UK. So there is the detriment of the location that I don't think is you know amazing here in terms of uh, the serendipity that it allows, but the the sheer concentration of talent going after the same thing broadly. I think is what still makes it pretty special.
0: And I want to talk to you about your investors because you have got a bit of an all-star UK investor lineup as well before we even get to your US. You talked about Brent at the beginning, but you've also got Esvedra on your board as well. Yeah. Um, and just talk to us about how you've you've gone about that and, like, you know, and how do you go to your investors when you're like, well, we were a hardware company. That's what you invested <laughs> originally. I'm now going to become a software company. How does that conversation go? Yeah. So that's
1: been the biggest learning I've had, if I'm honest, in the last in the last two years is how do we pivot a seven year old, eight year old IoT company that had raised seventeen and a half million dollars into a B2B SaaS company and essentially start again. You know, we got a lot of new investors coming in or um uh, people that wanted to invest in what is now kind of chapter two of the business, you know, wanted us to set up a new company or wanted us to kind of cram down the cap table and, and do something that I didn't think would be honoring of, of the folks that had put the capital in prior. Because we had um, uh, strategic investors like Intel and Hewlett Packard Enterprise that were investing behind wireless charging because that's what they were doing as corporates as well. With corporate venture capital, what often happens though is that. with the corporates themselves the strategic initiatives on their end change and that's what happened with intel uh, in, in particular they were no longer going after wireless charging in 2017 so we weren't strategic for them on, on that point anymore, but they were, they were still investors and very supportive of, of the business. So it was a really good conversation, if I'm honest with you. And, and for the most part, entrepreneurs in the last two years have had the air cover of a global pandemic, <laughs> right? To, to kind of say, this is why we need to do this. And so it's largely unprecedented times. Everybody, I think, was just really, really pleased with how we made the pivot. You know, we kept everybody involved. Um, and i said to the board in in august 2020 either we can cut the team down to 5 people and we can hide in a cave for a couple of years conserve our burn rate and wait for wireless charging to become a thing again or we can go after what our customers are saying could be an opportunity which is hybrid work and you know the board said let's go let's do it one of the board members said um this isn't really a pivot Dan this is an acceleration into an adjacency. <laughs> and uh, and and the other board members and the other board said it's a pivot pivot hard go now. And so um, yeah we doubled the product engineering team basically over the course of the, uh, the month and um, we went really hard at it. So for the most part everybody's been like we're super pleased to skill to still have the business alive and in the, in the place it's now in.
0: You'll have heard in this episode as talk a lot about the future of work. I think the future of work is very different to the future of jobs. There's definitely areas of crossover, but they are different. And that's why I've launched a new podcast with Eliza Philby called The Shift. We're going to be examining the shift away from the traditional shift as it were. And so Eliza appeared on our podcast in series three. It was one of our most popular episodes. She's a generational historian studying the future of demographics. So we're going to be talking about a couple of stories each week that have piqued our interest. So wherever you get your podcasts, just search The Shift with Eliza Philby and Jimmy McLaughlin. Now, your, your Twitter bio describes you as a Brit in the Bay Area. And so you've talked about how you sort of straddle two very different cultures. Um, and you put a lot of work into your content production that you do as a company, which we'll come back to. But you published a piece last summer saying that U.S. workers were twice as keen to return to the office as U.K. workers. Why do you think that's the case?
1: Well, so a number of things. I think that it's quite interesting. What you hear in the press a lot is is people, there's kind of oppressive CEO, you know, the man upstairs that wants people back in, which I think can be true in some circumstances. I also heard of engineers at large companies here that they were really sad that them they weren't going to get their free meals and dry cleaning anymore, that <laughs> they were going remote. So there is like this, and you can imagine a narrative as well. If the press spun a different narrative, we were talking about this yesterday with one of our new investors. They, we were basically saying, CEOs could, and they are, for a, a lot of CEOs and CFOs are doing this. They are reducing their real estate because it's a huge; it's the second largest cost after staff. And so there could also be this narrative if the press decided they wanted to do it of, you know, nasty CEOs taking away office spaces so they can save money. It's not that narrative in the press. It's the we want the ability to work from wherever we are uh, for the most part. Um. But, yeah, it, it's been very interesting because what's actually happened, though, Jimmy, even though most people in the U.S. said they wanted to go back. And you've got to remember there's a, you know, there's coastal U.S. and then there's the middle of the U.S. And by and large, folks are back uh, almost daily um, in the middle of, of the U.S. Um, on the coasts, that's not the case. But we, we definitely see more product usage in the U.K. on a relative basis. Um, which I think is people wanting to get out. I think is people wanting to be with each other, to feel a part of something. Loneliness is such a huge issue as well. We sat on data that's showing uh, that there's 15% increase in innovation when people get together. And so we've got this great guy that we work with called Nick Bloom who heads up the Future of Work Practice at Stanford. He's actually another Brit. He's been here for almost 30 years. He sat on this data, 15% more innovation happens when you're face to face. Um, But at the same time, there's 35% less resignations when you offer remote as part of your kind of hybrid strategy. So it's a bit of a conundrum as to why the US said it wanted to go back, (laughs) but it hasn't done in anger. It's quite the way it wanted to, which I would put down to optionality. People want to have as
0: much optionality as possible. I mean, what do you think the future of it will look like then? So in the next five years, what do you think the difference between the UK and US will be? So I
1: think it's, all, as I said, I think it's all going to come down to productivity. And we, we've got this kind of framework of of. The future of work, and if you could imagine with me, kind of this little pyramid of why am I working is the first block at the bottom of this pyramid. That's your vision, your mission, your values. That's why you get up. Why am I working? What am I working on? That's your OKRs, your key results, your objectives, etc. Uh, and then you've got this how layer. So why am I working? What am I working on? How am I going to do this work? And that's where you get your tools like Zoom and Slack and email and whatever. And then you've got when, where, and who? So why am I working? What am I working on? How am I going to do that work? And then when, where, and who? Previously, all of that sat on the platform of the office. That's where most of that work take, took place. Uh, McKinsey data says that uh, 99% of people spent 80% of their time pre-pandemic uh, in the office. Now it's just all over the map how much time people are spending in the office. So the, the office is no longer the platform where work happens. The office has moved to the how layer. It's moved to the toolkit layer of how certain types of work can get done better. And the platform for work is no longer a place. It's therefore a time. Time is now the platform for work. The working week is the platform for work, if you will. And so in that framework, the future of work becomes like an operating system. You know, like on our computers right now, the operating system is sending video to the graphics processor and email and chat to the central processor because those are the best places to process that workload and get the best outcomes we think the future of work is going to look like that where you have a system that helps you as a company and as individuals become masters of hybrid and so you do your heads up creative whiteboarding ideation time face to face because you're going to get better outcomes But you then do your, okay, we've got our to-do list. We now know what we need to do. You do your heads-down execution work remotely. And for most companies, that's looking like one to three days face-to-face and then the rest remotely. And so we think that should all be coordinated. In terms of the US and the UK, I think it's going to come down to how much those companies want to drive on performance. We're seeing that the Wall Street take a very aggressive move to trying to always be back, folks like uh, Goldman and and obviously Elon as well with, with Tesla. And there are others like Microsoft that are taking a, a much more balanced, I would say, approach around coordinating who should be where and when and, and why. So I, honestly, I don't know what it's gonna look like between the US and the UK. But I do think that the US, I think in the US, companies are more afraid of their employees. I think companies are more afraid of their employees in the UK. I think employers in the UK expect their employees to comply. That's not the case here as much.
0: I just want to go into the the final section of this. And one of the things that I remember from our first meeting in number 10 that time was you talking about kind of being a Christian and sort of being quite open with that early. And actually looking more into your background ahead of us chatting today, you've actually held sort of jobs kind of in, in religion. And I think that's a really interesting sort of background for a, a founder. Because you need so much faith as a founder anyway in your <laughs> business, etc. And you were talking about yeah. there, about like the why am I doing this and so on and it's just i don't think we've ever had somebody that's kind of uh, worked um in religion beforehand and i just love your kind of reflections on that really
1: yeah no it reminds me i had a, i was having a drink a few years ago with a really well-known uk uh, neo bank founder <laughs> and it was the first time that we'd met and he was asking me exactly that kind of what i did before studied theology, worked for a church. You know, he said, so you're a Christian? I said, yeah, <laughs> uh, absolutely. Um, so he said, you, you go from church theology degree to founding an IoT company. Kind of, How does that happen <laughs> and, and why? <laughs> and I think I said something along the lines of, it, it makes me really comfortable with risk. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, uh, because ultimately, you know, I don't think any of this is about me. I, I did nothing to get here. And for me personally, I believe that God is the one that provides for me and my family. And that doesn't necessarily mean that everything's guaranteed to work out and be a success. But it does certainly provide a platform and a foundation to start from, you know, <laughs> to quote the great theologian, Dr. Pepper, you know, <laughs> what's the worst that could happen if, if I believe that I'm being looked after? What's the worst that could happen? you know, a little bit like cavemen, you know, they were able to go and hunt once base and home was secure. So I think it provides a great advantage and platform for founders. Uh, And I actually mentor and work with quite a large number now of of younger Christian founders as well, kind of going Mm. through this journey as well in the tech space. And then I guess there's like the day-to-day like fuel, right? The day-to-day journey, like the highs and the lows of we just won this customer or this investor out, but this customer churned, what on earth happened? And, and that's where, you know, faith needs to become, you know, really real and more than just words in, the, in a book. And I learned a lot through this guy, this theologian called Walter Brueggemann, um, who basically has this idea that of this kind of function of, he calls it the function of prophecy. The idea of having a vision of the future and that actually speaking that future into existence uh, through vision and articulating your vision actually makes it become a reality and uh, it's it's basically this idea of that the future is not limited to what kind of current definitions of reality are because all things are possible and I believe that all things are possible because there's someone that's working for my ultimate good <laughs> behind the scenes. So I think it provides a great foundation. It makes me super comfortable with risk.
0: We talked a lot about in this interview about the difference between US and UK. I mean, coming from a yeah. political background my, myself as well, like, you know, when I spent time in the States on the political scene, it is, you know, people much more talk about that kind of faith, you know, the the not having any... Aspect of the debate in UK politics at all. um, Do you find that founders are willing to be much more open about about faith as well? Just a bit more of an openness in the States to it all?
1: It's a really good question. Um, And I haven't thought about that, if I'm honest. Yes and no. Silicon Valley is um, not a place where it's talked about that openly. Um, there's this amazing episode if you've ever watched the HBO Silicon Valley uh, series there's this hilarious episode where um, the founder in Silicon Valley is he's kind of working with their friend on their friend's new startup their friend is a gay Christian and the founder <laughs> outs his friend to his parents <laughs> and it's this whole thing of He's this His friend's a gay Christian, but he outs him to his parents, and he outs him as a Christian, not as a gay man. <laughs> and it's this whole kind of, you know, uh, thing happening there. So Silicon Valley is not a place where it's spoken about that openly. I'm fortunate enough to be in a great group of folks that, that do speak about it openly um, and encourage one another. I think elsewhere it is. Certainly in the South it is, and it's much more in the everyday culture. It's actually very similar to northern ireland my wife's from northern ireland it's Mm. very similar to northern ireland in terms of the religiosity if that's a word of it all it's just something that you're in you do regularly and but like everything there's different flavors and streams of it some of it that i'm massively allergic to if i'm honest you know when you say god and government that sends off alarm bells in my head of versions of and flavors of of christianity that i'm really allergic to um so, and that's why, you know, for me, it's not really a religion thing. It's more of a faith thing and a way of life thing, because there's so much of the religious stuff that I don't see <laughs> as what Jesus wanted, <laughs> yeah. um, but, but, but that, that, that's me. So I do think it's more open, not so much in the valley, but there's certainly, a, I think, a real openness to, in the last 10 years, there's a real openness to spirituality, so everybody can have their own spirituality, right? Um, so super interesting time.
0: The great, the greater purpose. Yeah, that has the, the whole kind of meditation thing as well become very much a kind of yeah. technology uh, aspect to it. Final question that we ask everyone, is there a book or an inspiring piece of content that you come back to time and time again on your journey as a founder?
1: Yeah. Um, so there is there is a book that I come back to called Hopeful Imagination by Walter Frugman that I come back to. Um, time and time again. The, the, the book that I really enjoyed recently has been um, The Life We Always Wanted by a guy called Andy Crouch. I actually hosted my first ever book club, which I've never done before. I didn't really know how to do it. So I just got a bunch of chairs in the back garden, backyard and some IPA and, <laughs> and it kind of worked um, for folks. But yeah, we did it on um, The Life We Always Wanted. And it's looking at um, the way technology is shaping behavior to the extent of, you know, if we throw our kids, you know, you and I were talking about our kids before we started. If we throw our kids an iPad to help them stop crying, it's teaching them to get comfort from a screen, yeah. um, not from a person. So I find all that stuff super interesting. But the most fascinating part of the book was this definition between devices and instruments. And it's this idea that says a device is kind of a piece of technology that promises you relief from your burdens because you've got this you don't need to do this anymore whereas an instrument uh, is something that amplifies your ability as a human and actually makes you more creative and human when using it so a device takes the human out of the loop an instrument um, enhances the human's ability and makes them more human and so yeah Andy Crouch the life I've always wanted I have just found that fascinating and um wanting to build more instruments not more devices after that
0: well that i think is a brilliant summary to finish on what is kind of important dan thanks so much for coming on and people should check out your twitter threads um of how the kind of the change from the um hardware to sas company uh, is fascinating and really interesting to see so thanks so much for coming on and, and sharing your journey with us dan Jimmy, thank you. Big fan of what you do. Thanks for listening to Jimmy's Jobs. One of the ways we make this show possible is through our various partnerships. If you'd like to partner with us, you'd be joining one of the UK's fastest growing business podcasts, reaching over 40,000 listeners every month. I know many podcasts brag about the size of their audience, but few can say they are listened to by the biggest name in the country. I wanted to ask you what your favourite podcast was, aside from Jimmy's Jobs, of course.
1: Jimmy's Jobs is obviously my favourite podcast.
0: We've helped a wide variety of groups tell their story, from the National Farmers Union right through to the FinTech Alliance. So if you'd like to work with us, just go to www.jobsofthefuture.co. To keep up to date with all Jobs of the Future news, you can follow us across all social media including our brand new TikTok and YouTube channels.